If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Central City Church, and I just want to let you know that I'm I'm humbled that you would come and join us uh, on the podcast. I know that this is a little different. Um, uh, Maybe for some of you, uh, this is pretty standard. Uh, I'm really grateful for a lot of the people who listen to our sermons on the podcast, Um, but for those who are used to showing up on Sunday morning and and being with us in person, and maybe that's just what you need uh, during this time where there's a lot of anxiety or fear, um, that that this this could be a little different. And so I'm glad that you're here. Um, I'm honestly and sincerely, I sincerely believe that God's just going to meet us uh, in this time together. Uh, I do want to let you know that we do have a Connect card, uh, pretty standard for our worship together. And uh, you can find it online at centralcity.co slash connect. You can also find the link in the podcast page, as with all the other announcements. I do want to, before we get into our uh, sermon today, to share just a few announcements. The the, the first off is we're going to be doing um, a daily podcast. It's called Daily Readings, Central City Daily Readings. And I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, It's just short, five to ten minute um, uh, uh, episodes, and they include a scripture reading, a uh, short devotional, and during this next couple weeks, as things develop and everything is so, um, everything changes so quickly, and there's a, a lot of different ways that we're responding as a church and figuring out what it means to be a community during this time, we'll, we'll share, we'll use that daily podcast to keep you up to date as well. Um, but majority of it will just be a scripture reading and um, a brief reflection. So I think it'll encourage you. I think it'll help us stay connected. So I encourage you to go check it out. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Google Play. And it's available on our website. And you can find all of those links on our website by going to centralcity.co slash readings. And it'll be on our homepage as well if you just go to centralcity.co. The second announcement is during this time, we are uh, offering some ways to volunteer, specifically with our free store, Little Bottoms Free Store. Um, We're trying to figure out what it means to help people uh, with the needs that they have during this time. And um, Alyssa is kind of putting together a plan. If you're interested in learning more about that or if you want to volunteer, whether that's packing diapers into a box to be delivered to moms or even maybe delivering uh, items, uh, helping deliver items so, or something else, if you're interested in volunteering, uh, if you're in good health and, and um, we'd love to have you come and be a part of that, you can contact Alyssa at Alyssa, Alyssa at centralcity.co or find out more about it on our website. Uh, those are announcements this morning. I do want to remind you, uh, There's a, if you're interested in giving to Central City Church, you can do that. Um, you can give uh, by going to our website, centralcity.co slash give, or there'll be a link on the podcast page, and you're welcome to do that. You can also give by texting any amount to 84321. That's 84321 if you're interested in giving, supporting the work that we're doing uh, during this season and um, in the seasons to come. Uh, those are announcements. I do want to just take a second to invite us to uh, meet with God um, as, uh, as Scripture is going to be read and proclaimed. Uh, So will you pray with me? God, we just give you thanks. Um, We give you thanks even in those seasons where we're not sure what to give thanks for. Lord, we, we ask especially right now that you'd give us wisdom, that as we as a community uh, wrestle with what it means to be a church, um, especially when the world needs the church the most, that you would just open up doors for us to respond in humility um, and in grace. 
that you would uh, find ways for us to care for one another and for those who are vulnerable. Lord, we come before you and we pray just as you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're currently in a series where we're looking at the disciples who are closest to Jesus. And two weeks ago, we did an overview of Peter, and last week we looked at James and John. And with James and John, we were specifically looking at their request to be given a place of honor and ultimately how, you know, how Jesus measures each other and how Jesus measures greatness and really how the disciples struggled to compare themselves. We'll talk about that a little bit today as well because it becomes a, a theme in their stories. But today we're going to get into the heart of our series. We're going to look at the first of four occasions where Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside to experience something unique. Now, in light of everything that is happening in the world, this would be a good and inappropriate time to depart from our normal series. Yet, I felt all week of peace about continuing the series and these scriptures, and, and I feel that God has maybe in some ways even lined up this series for such a time as this. I'm not sure that they, they fit perfectly into what is happening, but, but there is enough that, that I really think God has something to say to us. And In fact, as I dug into this story in particular, I found it in many ways relevant. So my prayer is that, that God will use this in some mysterious way to encourage and challenge us um, in the, the, the days to come. And so with that, let's jump in. There, there are four stories in the gospel where Jesus pulls Peter and James and John aside to experience something unique. First, there's a story about a little girl that Jesus heals. Uh, then there's the transfiguration. And after that, Jesus talks to them privately about the end times. And, and finally, Jesus invites those uh, three people into his one of his most intimate prayer times right before um, the night before he dies on the cross. So today we're going to look at the first story, the story of this healing that Jesus does in this little girl's life um, that only Peter, James, and John get to witness. It's in the early part of their ministry in the Gospel of Mark, and it starts with all of the disciples together uh, before he calls those three out. It starts with them all together uh, near the Sea of Galilee. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 21. Here's what it says. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. I'll pause there for a second. Jesus had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and, and just to be you know fair, it's not really a sea, it's a lake. It, it, you can see across it. It's it's much smaller than even our Great Lakes. It's it's really just a very large pond. And if you if you go to our podcast podcast page, you can actually find a photo I posted um, that I took when I was at the Sea of Galilee. And you can see in that photo, it's it's just a really nice sized lake surrounded by hills and mountains. It's a beautiful country, but Jesus crosses it in a boat for good reason. He wants to get away from the crowds. Now, if you think that's ironic, given the state of our world, well, hold on. It gets even more interesting. Here's what you need to know about the crowds, especially in the Gospel of Mark. And, and we've spent some time with this before, but it's very important for this story for us to spend some time with it again. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark treats the crowds as if they were their own character. 
a character with uh, in the story of the Gospel of Mark. And, and here's a spoiler alert. The crowds, at least in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, they're seen as an obstacle. They're a barrier. They're, they're an annoyance. They're not quite the villain of the story, but they're almost the villain of the story. I mean, they're really, they're, they're really not seen in a positive light. The crowds are set up in the story to sort of limit Jesus's ministry, to inhibit it, and in general, prevent Jesus from doing what he wanted to do. Now, Jesus came to earth to do a lot of things. Um, eventually, he would die on the cross and rise again. But one of the things he would do before he died on the cross, because if all he was going to do was die on the cross, he would have been started his ministry, he would have been baptized, uh, you know, he would have began his ministry, and then he would have died on the cross. But no, he spent three years walking and teaching, not only the crowds, because they didn't always get it, but his disciples. And and that's one of his primary purposes during those three years ministry is investing in these 12 disciples. So um, that's one of the things he wanted to focus on, and the crowds would often make that difficult. Um, and then often also be, the crowds were object lessons for the disciples. You know, he would kind of debrief with them the things that they misunderstood. So we're in chapter 5, but the story about the crowds as a character, they go back to Mark chapter 2, and I just want to spend a second with this. In Mark 2, there's this beautiful story about Jesus. Uh, He's teaching everyone, and they're all listening, but these crowds have gathered all around, and they're packed into this tiny little house. I mean, everyone's just squeezed in together, the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing right now. I mean, just hundreds of people, so much so that this guy who is disabled, he's not able to get to Jesus because the crowds are too great. Now, if you grew up in a traditional church, then you probably remember this story from the felt board. And, you know, that's maybe a nuanced reference that some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you should check them out. Felt boards, Sunday school felt boards, Google it. But this this guy's friends uh, carry him. He can't walk. They carry him. They carry him to the roof of the house and they pull back the palm branch roof because they can't get to Jesus. They pull back this palm branch roof and they lower him down to the center of the room where Jesus is and Jesus heals him. It's a great story. But if you're paying attention, you'll see that the obstacle to the guy's healing is the crowds. In Mark 3, this theme continues. Jesus tries to get away from the crowd so he can be alone with his disciples, but they keep following him. They gather around him, pushing him his back even against the sea. They push him against uh, the sea, uh, all trying to get this taste of the Messiah. It gets so bad that Jesus told his disciples in Mark 3 to have a boat ready in case they overcrowded him. So, so you can imagine Jesus is standing with his back against the lake and a boat is behind him. So he's ready to just run out into the water and hop in the boat in case the crowds get too crazy. Later in this chapter, he goes into a house to even eat with his disciples. And the pastor says he couldn't eat because the crowds packed in around them again. And then in Mark 4, he didn't get to, uh, he, he, um, in Mark 4, he didn't just have a boat ready to escape from. He, he, he taught from a boat. He's like, fool me once, shame on me. You know, Jesus says like he is going to now teach the crowds from a boat because, you know, then he can get away very quickly if the crowds become too overwhelming. So why were the crowds so interested in Jesus? Simple. He could heal people, make food appear from nowhere, and cast out demons. He was a miracle worker. And even though being a miracle worker wasn't his primary purpose, miracle workers are what made him the most popular. 
They wanted him because he was a miracle. Jesus is so popular during this time in his ministry. And as a Christian, you would think that would be a good thing. Isn't that our goal, to make Jesus more popular, to tell more people about Jesus? Most people would say that that's the goal of the church, which is what makes Jesus' reaction to this popularity so confusing. Over and over again during this time, he says, don't tell anyone about who I am. I want to spend a few moments with this because it shows up in this week's story as well, but it's it's really riddled throughout the Gospel of Mark. It, it, like in Mark 3, 12, where he says this, he says, but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. He says this over and over again. And this has always confused people, especially people who who want to be evangelical, who want to share their faith. And, and I want us to be a church that shares our faith and tells people about Jesus. We try to figure out ways to do that. And so because of this, if you believe that your but if you believe your core purpose of the faith is to tell other people about Jesus and then you read passages where Jesus tells his disciples over and over again not to tell people about him well that's like a little confusing don't you think I have to be honest there's there's been many biblical scholars throughout history that have written intelligent papers and books on this very topic it's referred to as the messianic secret and you can look it up if you're interested in learning more. I'll offer my own thoughts in three parts, but 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 they are just my thoughts. And I'm going to offer two here, and I'll offer one later on. But here's my first thought. Why, why would Jesus tell his disciples not to tell other people about him? I don't think Jesus wanted to be known as a miracle worker. He was God and could heal, but he was also human. And let's be honest, crowds could be dangerous. I don't think I need to say much for you to understand me when I say that, you know, when crowds panic and crowds become desperate, they can become dangerous. I went to the grocery store this week. Thankfully, everyone was actually super nice, even though we were in lines that were extending through half the store. And even though everyone was super nice, I was a little nervous because there's just so many people in the area. All it would take would be for less than half of them to start to panic. Jesus, at the time of our story, was was kind of like that hot commodity that every... I don't want to say Jesus was like toilet paper, because then you're going to quote me on that. But Jesus was this hot commodity that everyone wanted as much as they could get of, and they were going to get as much of Jesus as they could until Jesus ran out, even if they didn't need it. Jesus could heal and feed, and the crowds didn't understand who he was or his bigger mission or what he was really about. They just wanted as much as they could get of this emergency commodity. So I think it feels pretty safe at that point in time to discourage the word from spreading. That's one thought. Here's another. Jesus couldn't, could, couldn't help but heal the people he came in contact with. He always did. If he ran into someone who was in need, whether that was because they were blind or because they had a, a, an illness that couldn't be diagnosed or, or because they, even with the story later on that they, they lay in bed and, and all thought they were, they were dead. Jesus would always love that person right there and heal them. But his main focus, his, his bigger strategy wasn't to be a healer. 
His main strategy during this time was to invest in his 12 disciples who would in turn invest in others, who would then, those would invest in others as well, and they would pass on these teachings and this life and the spirit of God would be passed on over generations so that 2,000 years later, here we all, we still uh, are, are meeting in the name of Jesus and we still know what it looks like to love our enemies and to serve the poor. Healings only last a lifetime. His time with his disciples and the things he would teach them would last for generations and generations. Don't get me wrong. Jesus would always heal and love and address the problem or the person or the issue that was in front of him. He didn't turn people away. He wanted to help, but this bigger strategy was to change the world. And and keeping his exposure down at this time so that he can invest in the 12 made sense. He, he was looking for disciples who were following him for the right reasons. And this is still relevant today. If you're following Jesus because of what you can get out of Jesus, then you're not following Jesus for the right reasons. If you're following Jesus because you want to learn how to live differently and be made into the person you're created to be, okay, now we're on to something. And Jesus was interested in those people and the crowds who were there simply to get something from Jesus didn't always fit into that category. He still loved them. He would still meet their needs when he could, which was almost any time someone came in contact with him. But he was interested in people who were interested in living differently. So that's where our story picks up, Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. They, they followed him around the lake. Once again, it's not a big lake. You can you could eventually get across. It wouldn't happen right away, but you could get across. And they gathered around him again, verse 22. He said, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. He said, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Someone with influence and power, as a leader in the synagogue, is able to cut through the crowd. And they probably moved out of the way. He's very prestigious, probably an individual in this area. You know, centrally related to like a local politician, but in a religious sense. And he asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter who's sick. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. Of course Jesus does. He doesn't turn people away. So he goes with him, which, which won't be easy because there are crowds gathered around him, remember? Here's the next verse. It says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And then this happened, verse 25. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Jesus is on his way to heal someone. And someone who needs healing hears about Jesus and tries to seek him out. In this crowd is a woman who's been suffering And I'm so glad that this woman kind of inserts herself into the story because I think this woman in many ways represents and can identify, people can identify with her who've been sick and who haven't been able to figure out what's wrong. Every person who spent all they have to try to get better but only get worse. Every person who spends their money, even to the point of bankruptcy on health care, and they still can't get help. And I think that's someone a lot of people can relate to. There was a survey conducted jointly by the Kaiser Family Foundation in the Los Angeles Times that found that, that this last year, uh, that among consumers, four in 10 report that their family 
has either had problems paying medical bills or difficulty affording premiums or out-of-pocket medical costs. And about half say someone in their household skipped or postponed some type of medical care or prescription drugs in the past year because of the cost. You know, before this, uh, you know, now we have this thing called GoFundMe. This woman wouldn't have had that option. She spent all she had, and, and, and there was nowhere to go. Now we have GoFundMe. I don't know if that's good or bad. But GoFundMe reports that it helped raise more than $650 million a year for medical campaigns. That $650 million is raised through GoFundMe for medical-related campaigns uh, for friends and for neighbors, for people like this woman. Now, she didn't have a GoFundMe campaign, so like many people, this woman is desperate. She hears of Jesus. She pushes through the crowd, Now, it, it, which is bold for her because if she has a, a problem uh, with bleeding, I won't get into it, but it, it would con- she would be considered ceremonially unclean. She shouldn't be around crowds. She should be practicing social distancing. That's what was expected of her in the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law is filled with laws related to social distancing, and this is one of them. She shouldn't be around people. She wasn't allowed to religiously. She was considered unclean. But she had to be healed. And so she pushes through the crowds, (laughs) religiously contaminating everyone on the way just to get to Jesus. She had to get to Jesus, the miracle worker. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She, I love that, that phrase. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She just knew. Jesus changed her from the inside out, and, and that's beautiful. She was healed. But I want you to stop and pause once again from the perspective of the crowds and Jesus' consistent word around, hey, don't tell anyone about this. Don't you see how dangerous this could be for Jesus? Uh, that, that this woman pushed through the crowd and just touches his clothes and she's healed. How, how this could spiral into craziness with people who are desperate and panicking. I think this is the, exactly the kind of craziness that Jesus wanted to avoid. All someone has to do is touch him. You know, the miracle worker, he, he's this hot commodity. Time, so time down, you know, let people just touch his cloak, get an assembly line started. We'll get everyone healed in the whole community. Come forward, buy this anointed cloak from Jesus for five easy payments, and you too can be healed. That's not how it works. But you could see how people would run away with it. Here's what happens next. At once, Jesus realized that his power had gone out from him. I want to pause there just for a second. You know, this woman realized she was healed, and Jesus realized he had healed someone. That even in this crowd, you have Jesus have this intimate moment with another human. All of these people are pressing around him, and he knows and she knows that something unique happened. So he asks. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? <laughs> the disciples don't get this. They don't get that something unique happened. They don't get that something intimate happened. That even when in a crowd, Jesus was able to have a connection with an individual. Verse 31, the disciples said this. You see the, the people crowding against you, the disciples said, and yet you ask, who touched me? They're like, hey, Jesus, everyone's touching you. We can't get away from it. The people are so annoying, and you're asking us, who touched me? And she's like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me in a way that 
was different. We had a moment. I could tell. The next verse says that, But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. She was, she was worried she'd get in trouble that she had stolen something. That's how her mind worked. She was like, I stole this power from Jesus. And that's how the ancient world kind of viewed power and miracle workers. It was a commodity that you could buy or trade and certainly then steal. And this woman had stolen it from Jesus. And so she's scared. She, she fell at his feet and told him the whole truth. And then he says this, though, in verse 34. He, says, he said to her, daughter... This word will be used later on for the little girl that he heals. The, the whole reason he's walking through this crowd, he'll, he'll say daughter to her as well. But he says to this woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a beautiful story. And, and I, I want to just say that I, I believe in miracles. I, I do. I believe that God still heals people. Um, I don't understand it. I don't claim to understand it. I certainly don't claim to be able to control it. I don't think there's some sort of special process you can engage in or ritual right that you can accomplish to, to encourage a miracle. Uh, I'm not interested in any of that. But but, but I do know this. I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I, I think of miracles like this. I, uh, miracles are, by definition, the exception to the rule. Nine times out of ten, uh, you know, a hundred times, uh, 99 times out of 100, life just happens like it always does. It's just life happens and it falls all the normal expectations of, of, of natural laws. Nine times out of 10, 99 out of 100. But every once in a while, I've seen life go against its own rules. And, and based on the story and others, I think miracles can happen. And part of it is is it, Jesus names it, it's not because you touched some special cloth, but it's this interaction, this dance between faith and the person of Jesus, this this working of faith in our life and the and the power of God. And 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 when faith and, and God meet, something mysterious and beautiful and powerful can happen. But I want you to hear me when I say it can doesn't mean it always will. We can have faith and still not be healed. And and if you don't and if you haven't been healed, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. And I, I want you to hear that, but but hold on to that thought because we're going to get to it in a little bit. So Jesus is going on. He, he's healed this one woman, but he's still headed to heal another. And, and this is what happens. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus and the synagogue leader. And, and they said to him, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? See, Jesus was too late. He took too much time. The crowds showed him you know, slowed him down too much. He, he didn't get there in time. And so verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. While Jesus was being held up by the crowds, the, the little girl passed away. But Jesus had already set his mind on seeing her. So he says, you know what, friends? I've got this. Verse 37. Now, this is where the story becomes the kind of story we're looking at in this series. This is the whole reason we're looking at this, this particular story of this particular healing on this particular day. Verse 37 says this. So he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So here's what happens. Jesus finally puts down his foot. 
he leaves the crowds behind. He even leaves behind most disciples, and likely there were more than just 12 who walked with Jesus. There were others, women, and, and, uh, and other followers of Jesus who were kind of traveling with the 12, but, but he leaves all of them aside, and he only lets Peter, James, and John. These three get to experience this. So here's where we start asking this question. This is what we're asking in the series is, given this story, what does it look like to truly be close to Jesus, to be one of Jesus's closest disciples? What special, unique thing do we get to experience? What does it, and what does it teach us about wanting to be close to Jesus? So here's what happens. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. It was common for people to gather family and friends and even strangers at times, really anyone from the community to come and cry. And and, and crying was meant to be pronounced, not, not a quiet cry with a little tear. It was loud and they knew how to mourn. They groaned and wailed and cried and made a scene. We don't do it like that. We shed a quiet tear and wipe it with a box of tissues nearby almost immediately. And that's fine. That's how we like to mourn in a public space. Maybe in private, we, we might wail a little bit, and, and I encourage you to. But in public, we like to keep ourselves together and composed. But the Israelites of this time and many other cultures, even to this day, were loud about it. And maybe we're missing something from that. But they're wailing, and Jesus hears all of this, and knowing what he will do, and, and he quiets them. He says, she's just sleeping. He claims she has been misdiagnosed, that she's in a coma or unconscious, or she isn't dead yet. And they laugh, I assume loudly. And here's what happens in verse 40. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went where the child was. So he kicks them all out. Here's where the story has gone. He starts with the crowds, but leaves them behind. He leaves most of his disciples behind. He only takes three of them with him, and then he kicks out the funeral crowd. So he's just left with the three disciples, the girl and her parents, and he brings his the parents and three disciples into the girl's room. So he leaves the crowds behind. He enters into someone's house. He enters into their bedroom. He takes ministry into their home, into their house. He brings it to them, They're very private, very intimate. It's almost this perfect passage for the world we live in, Jesus and social distancing. But think about it for a second. We're all beginning to realize that, that so much of what we do in this world happens in crowds, in large gatherings. So much of our life happens in large gatherings. And Jesus did a lot with the crowds. But the heart, I think, of Jesus' ministry happened in small, intimate groups and in personal relationships. Think about it like this. How many churches would continue to exist if they were never allowed to meet in groups of more than 12? Not many. How long would we exist as a church if we were not allowed to meet in groups of 12 or even 15? You know, I was able to do a conference call with our board Thursday night to determine what we'd do with the coronavirus, and we talked about not doing worship for at least the next two weeks and how we would, you know, replace it with some podcasting, including the daily podcast, which I encourage you to check out. And we talk about how little bottles would figure out how to get resources to people without encouraging people to show up in one place and how they would essentially leave the crowds behind and take ministry to people's homes and try and figure out how we might deliver stuff to people's homes. Very similar to this story. In fact, most of the time, we didn't even discuss how to keep our church alive during this time. The board spent most of their time talking about how the church might help support our community 
during this time. And I left that conference call and I was convinced more than ever that, that yeah, you know what, gathering together is awesome and I'm going to look forward to the, the chance we get to do it again. But even when we don't meet as a church, we still get to be the church. Jesus is showing his disciples what it looks like to be close to people in need, at their bedside, in their home. Crowds can be fun. Popularity can be addictive. But true ministry in the way of Jesus is personal, above all else. Large gatherings have been canceled, but loving your neighbor hasn't been. Talking to a friend isn't canceled. Checking on the elderly and getting groceries for them, that that hasn't been canceled. Making sure those in need still have what they need, that's still happening. But here's what Jesus does in verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, they were completely astonished. They were completely astonished. Of course they were. This little girl had almost been lost. She was dead and she's now alive, which I have to say is really kind of a picture to what Jesus came to do to begin with. I mean, Jesus ultimately came to die and rise again to change the world through his death and resurrection and all that it represents to, to love people to the point of suffering. And, and, and they, they're blown away. They're like, she's dead. Now she's alive. And he, But he, they're so astonished that this is what Jesus says. He says it again. He said it a couple other times. But in verse 43, he says it again. He says, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Can I just say that I love that he's the one who has to say, hey, you know what? I think she's actually hungry. I mean, how surprised and, I mean, they're probably freaking out. The mom and dad are freaking out. The disciples are so like, oh my days. And they're probably hugging her and like just so excited to have her back that Jesus is the only one who's not really blown away by this because, you know, he's Jesus. And he's like, hey, by the way, she's hungry, <laughs> you know, which, you know, they don't realize it. They don't pick up on it, which is probably just another reason why he has to tell them to keep it to themselves. Not just, hey, keep this to yourselves because you, you, you're, you're overreacting, but, but he said he gave them strict orders, don't tell anyone. Here's why I think so. There's a danger in being blown away by what Jesus does. Instead of being blown away by who Jesus is. It can be really tempting to make the miracle you've seen the hero of the story. Can you, can you imagine how many times they would tell this story? How, how if they were allowed, how the disciples, those three disciples, would go and brag about it to the other disciples. How they would say, you know what? You guys saw Jesus heal a blind person. You see him heal, you know, cast out a demon here and there. But we saw him raise someone from the dead. Oh, my days. They, they wouldn't be able to stop. We know from the past two sermons, and we're going to probably see it again, that these disciples struggled mostly with the ways in which they compared and ranked each other. How many, how, I mean, this is just another way to have leverage over the other disciples. And don't you think that the parents would be kind of the same, that they would go and tell the story over and over again? And in doing so, how easy will it be for the story to no longer be about who Jesus really is, but just simply what Jesus did this one time? How, 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 will, how will it keep from becoming a story about uh, the Jesus 
who just heals instead of the Jesus who tells us to love our enemies, about the Jesus who will go and die on a cross and tells us to take our cross and and, 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 and do the same. And the Jesus who, who, who meets us in our suffering, how easy will it be to just tell the story of Jesus, the slot machine, put in a dollar, get out a miracle, the miracle worker Jesus, instead of the Jesus who really came to change the world? It'd be too easy. And it would no longer be personal. This is the kind of story you could sell books about. This is the kind of story that could go viral not only would Jesus be popular, she, the little girl, her parents, how easy would that be to become the most popular person in that town, in that region? I don't know. Jesus isn't interested in that. I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about this as I was reading commentaries and it was talking about healing and it was talking about how not everyone is healed and I can't say I have it all figured out, but I do have a few thoughts, and I want to share, and I want to share just honestly. And, and, it, and it's really this line that, that I'm paraphrasing from one of the commentaries I was looking at. You know, it's simply this. For every little girl that Jesus healed, there were likely thousands who didn't get that chance. You know, for every little kid at Nationwide Children's Hospital who recovers and gets to go home, there are those who don't. And while I want to be the person who rejoices and celebrates with those who recover, certainly it's also good to also be sensitive towards those who don't. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that when Jesus says, hey, don't go tell a bunch of people about this. Don't don't flaunt this. Jesus didn't necessarily come to heal everyone. I believe Jesus can heal but I don't believe that's Jesus' primary mission. And, and I can't say I fully understand it or understand why, but I do know that Jesus came to die and rise again and so that we could be healed from the inside out, that we might learn a new way of living. The disciples watched Jesus do something amazing, and then they had to keep it to themselves. And I want to pull a lesson out of that. To be close to Jesus is to get to watch Jesus do something amazing in other people's lives, and then sometimes in a very similar way, keep it to ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes as a pastor, I get to be with people who experience healing. Other times as a pastor, I get the privilege to be with people who don't. And as a pastor, I've been with both. And I'm sure it, uh, you, as a disciple of Jesus, as a human being, you've been with people both sides of the spectrum where things seem to work out and with those who things just don't work out. And you extend all your resources trying to figure it out. You know, there's nothing more unhealthy than to take one story and project it onto another. To take this thing that happened over here and to expect it to happen everywhere. There's nothing worse than to say, hey, God healed me, so God will heal you. Friends, that's not how it works. To be a disciple of Jesus is to understand that not everyone's story is the same. I, I hope you, I want you to hear this. If you want to be a mature disciple of Jesus, someone who is close to Jesus, one of the top three who are going to go on and lead the church, if you want to be that kind of disciple of Jesus, then you need to understand that not everyone's story is the same. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be with people no matter what God does in their life. 
and to refrain from projecting onto someone else what, what you have personally experienced. Think about it like this. I was thinking about this in my own experience. I'm going to share this. From, from the youngest age, I've, I've felt God lead me. I'm, just, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you. I've, I've known things before they've happened. I, I've been able to work towards goals and visions that, that God has given me. Sometimes years in the making, I've, I've seen and I've felt things that eventually become true. Alyssa and I could see the church plant eight years ago before it even became true. We have a document outlining what we hoped, what we thought God was doing in our lives eight years ago, what this church plant would look like. And we can pull it out. And it's kind of eerie how accurate it is. It wasn't 100% accurate, but it was kind of a strange, I mean, I'll share it with you sometime if you want to know. Uh, but but I've, I've been, I've been, able to get certain jobs that everyone else says I would get. It, 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 it's how I became a pastor, just simply because I felt God say, I'm going to have that job. And I've, I felt that things would happen and they do. That's a huge part of how I experience God. I, I just have a relationship with God, and part of it's because of my personality and how I'm wired. I have the futuristic strength of, um, from the Strengths Finder. I'm an Enneagram 8, and that certainly plays a part in all of this. But, but that's how I experience God, based on who I am and how I'm wired. I, I have a certain sense of confidence and, and understanding of where things are headed. Not always, but, but enough that it's really strengthened my faith. Um, now, I hesitate to tell you that. For the same reason Jesus told them to keep quiet, because by telling you that, you might think that that's where your spiritual life should head that your spiritual life should look like mine. In fact, for my own sake, uh, it's been tempting for me to project that onto people, to wonder why they don't experience God like I do. Maybe you experience God in a completely different way. If you were to say, if I was asking, what's, how do, how, what's the most profound ways you've experienced God? And, and you would share stories that don't sound like mine or my experience. And maybe you, like me, have been tempted to project that onto other people. When I disciple people and they struggle to know what's next in their life, I'm just like, why? Don't you hear the voice of God? I, I don't do this anymore, at least I hope I don't. But I, but in the past, I've, I've just not fully understood that people experience God differently. What God does in my life is going to be different from what God does in yours. And we are a church, not because we are the same but because we are different. That's what makes us a church. We experience God differently, and God uses us differently. We grow in love with each other by allowing space for each other to use our unique wiring, our unique passions, and our unique talents to make us better together. Being friends with Jesus, being his disciple, being close to Jesus requires this kind of maturity to let people have their own experience with Jesus. Wherever you find yourself this week and in the coming weeks, whether you're at home with family or home alone, I encourage you to imagine that Jesus right now is pushing past the crowds to get to your house, to sit with you, and to do something amazing in your life. I won't be so bold as to tell you what that is. I don't know. But whatever God does in your life, I want you to know that I'm thankful for it. I don't claim to know what it'll look like, but I'm thankful for it. In fact, I wonder, had the crowds been less interested in Jesus as a commodity, less interested in the vending machine Jesus, and more interested in the unique ways Jesus works in all of our lives, then, I, then Jesus maybe would have let them not have to keep it to themselves. That, that if they had been mature enough to see each story as precious and could embrace the mystery and nuance and tension of life, especially when life doesn't seem fair, especially when one story makes another story seem fair. If we could just embrace the mystery of that, I wonder if Jesus would have said, hey, 
You don't have to keep this to yourselves. You, you can tell each other. I, I know that you'll, you'll get it. You, you'll get that, you know, what happens here might not happen somewhere else. And every story is a little different. And, and, and we don't even, you know, you don't understand how it all works together. But you guys are mature enough to understand that. If that had been the case, I wonder if you wouldn't have told him to be quiet. I, I could be wrong. But here's what I know for sure. Whatever your life with God looks like, I'm just thankful you have one. And if God is doing something big in your life, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I'd love to hear about it. I, I commit to celebrating with you. But, but if God feels distant and you feel like God's not doing anything in your life, you know what? That's fine. I'm sorry. I, I, I want to commit to mourning with you, to being frustrated with you. If you're mad at God because, because, because it's not enough, you know what? That's fine. I'd love to hear about it. I'll try to be mad with you. Whatever your story is, I want to receive it as a gift without comparison because I want to be a disciple that can sit with anyone's story, good or bad, and love them where they're at. I'm not saying I am this. I'm saying I want to be. And I bet you want to be too. And so together, I I hope that that's who we are becoming. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your spirit, for the ways in which you work in our lives. Come and meet us in this. Help us to be people who love you, follow you, and love people wherever they find themselves. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.